Hello and welcome back to the Hunter's Quest podcast. This is your host, Hunter McWaters. It's great to be with you as always. And um, today I have an episode with a new friend of mine from the Pacific Northwest, who's also a filmmaker, uh, killer bow hunter, and um, someone you may have seen, I'm not sure, but his name is Nathan Endicott. And uh, the reason I wanted to have Nathan on today was because, uh, as you may or may may not have heard me talk about, um, I'm planning a hunt this year in Oregon um, for blacktails. And uh, it's a species of deer I've never hunted before. It's a state I've never hunted before. Um, It will be, hopefully, if I notch my tag, it will be the last subspecies of North American deer I need for my deer slam. You can see the rest of them back here behind me. Um, So I'm looking forward to that hunt, but um, I wanted to talk to Nathan, who's kind of a blacktail and Oregon specialist, and I wanted to talk to him and uh, learn about these these, uh, unique and interesting deer. They're very beautiful deer, and um, and it's a, it's a unique hunt and he has a unique style of hunting. Um, if you go, we talk about it in the episode, but if you go to his YouTube channel, you can search Nathan Endicott and, uh, you can find his film he just released, uh, recently that we kind of discuss in this podcast. He's got some incredible footage in there of rutting blacktails and, um, he ends up shooting a really nice one, but it's a cool film. Um, some great footage, like I said, of blacktails rutting and, um, and just an awesome film. So go check it out. Um, and uh, yeah, I want to give a couple shout outs real quick. Um, appreciate y'all's support. Um, if you haven't yet, please leave me a rating or a review on Apple. Uh, subscribe to the YouTube channel and the podcast. Um, this week, um, I have um, two shout outs. Um, one just says name 78650. And one is Marco Vasquez. So I think these are a couple new listeners. If you guys are back and you hear this, drop me a line on Instagram at TheHunter'sQuest and I'll send you some swag in the mail. Um, if you're not already, please follow me on Instagram at TheHunter'sQuest. And um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this episode and uh, have a great uh, rest of your spring. Whether you're gearing up for bear or still doing some turkey hunting, whatever you got coming down the pike. I know I'm super busy uh, planning this uh, next hunting season and there's lots and lots of cool stuff uh, in the pike. 2023 is going to be an amazing year. Hope you guys are ready for it. So stay tuned. Thanks for your support and we'll see you guys on the next one. All right, guys, welcome to the Hunter's Quest podcast. This is your host, Hunter McWaters. Good to be with you guys. And today I'm here with uh, my guest, Nathan Endicott. How you doing, dude? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, man. Thanks for joining me. So you are about as far away from me as possible in the lower 48, right? You're in Oregon? Yep, I'm in Oregon. Uh, yeah, I'm about a hour and a half drive from the coast the pacific ocean so okay. yeah it's i'm on the other side of the u.s are you north or south in oregon yeah I'm, I'm about dead center i i live at the southern end of the willamette valley okay so um yeah kind of dead center valley okay and are you like in a is your like a pretty small town or what kind of what's your area like you live in uh eugene is where i work and eugene's okay. the third largest city okay and population in Oregon. So it's, it's medium. It's not a big city by any, by, you know, any means. And Portland's our biggest city in Oregon. Portland gets a lot of heat and bad rap and it for, for good reasons. Um, (laughs) Portland's off the deep end in my opinion. And I lived there for five years. That's where I went to school. I went to college at Portland state university. I was distance runner there, graduated with civil engineering. So I've got a lot of knowledge and experience up in the Portland area. And I feel like I escaped it right before, um, you know, things it hit the to fan. Hell in a handbasket. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I can only imagine. I live pretty close to a, a large urban area. Um, so um, where I live specifically is still pretty, you know, pretty conservative, but um, definitely um, run into some woke folk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. sure you do too out there. Yeah. Yeah. No shortage. <laughs> so, so um, 
So we were talking off air. You're an engineer, um, but you also are a hunter and a filmmaker. And I know you have kind of some some family roots in the hunting industry, correct? Yep. Yep. So just tell me true. a little bit about yourself, your background. Just I don't know you at all, so just tell me about yourself. Sure. Man. Yeah. Uh, well, so I'm from Oregon, born and raised here. My dad owns an archery shop. It's called the Bow Rack. It's located mm-hmm. in Springfield, Oregon. My dad's owned that for over 30 years. Uh, so when you talk about family roots and the industry, that would be it. Yeah. More, um, I guess it feels like more recently, but it's not. It's been it's been quite a few years now. But uh, Cam Haynes is one of the locals that uh, has taken fitness and archery and elevated it now to a platform where he's got, um, you know, worldwide attention, especially with his new podcast and lift run shoot series. So, uh, that's neat to see. My dad actually appears, uh, at the archery shop, teaching people how to shoot a bow on his lift run shoot series. Cool. I've known cam growing up. Um, he's an awesome guy. Uh, we have some funny stories going back to running. Um, but anyway, tell me one, tell you one. (laughs) Um, well, Cam got me into running, to be okay. honest. I was just a young kid hanging out at the shop. Cam would always come in and shoot his bow. He was super competitive. He was always top on the list for having a techno hunt score. Techno hunt is like you shoot your bow at a screen, a trampoline screen that yeah. projects, you know, some live situation with a hunt. So you have to wait for the best ethical opportunity, and that's going to score you too on that. And cool. so you shoot this animal, you don't hit any obstruction and you get scored. So Cam was like top on the leaderboard. I was never, I was always trying to beat him, um, at like, a let's pick a spot type deal. And, but he's a great shot. So we always had this competitive thing and he would come in the shop and say, Hey Nate, um, you know, when are you going to go run with me? And I'm like, I've never run a day in my life. Right. Like I'm just hanging out at the shop. I go hunt with my dad. Cause I grew up doing that from the time I could walk, I was shooting a bow and, so it finally came to a point where uh, Cam's oldest son, Tanner, had been running some marathons, and Tanner's a few years younger than me. And he was like, hey, Nate, Tanner's going to run Pisco with me. He's like, you want to go? And so I was like, whatever, fine, let's get this over with. I'll go run with you. <laughs> and so he took me to this Mount Pisco, which is a close butte here in town. It's actually where he lifts, he films all of the uh, lift, run, shoot. Is that the so one the you always run- see him like carrying the rock up it yeah, and stuff? that's Pisco. Okay. And so uh, I'm just this young kid. And just There's really no quick for context, yeah. like how far is it to the summit? What's the elevation gain? Oh, gosh. Okay. So I don't know. Yeah. I, I just know the approximates. It's approximately 1.25, 1.25 miles, approximately 1,000 feet elevation gain. Okay. I don't know. Yeah. Beyond that. It's it's a pretty, it's pretty good steep. little climb. Yeah, yeah. It's a good climb. It's, it's not super steep. There's a right. couple sections that are pretty steep. And then it kind of... It, you're, you're never, you don't have a downhill <laughs> yeah. and it's rare. I wouldn't call it flat, uh, but for sure. So, yeah. So cam takes me out there and I guess I actually ran like the fastest time that he's ever heard of No, nice. when I was like this young kid. And how old were so, you? I want to say I was between the ages of 10 and 12. Oh, wow. um, okay. yeah, somewhere in there. So I was pretty young. I hadn't got into running yet. I got into running as a junior in high school. Hmm. I was a basketball player, played every sport. But finally, it was like, you know, Cam had taught me, like, I could be good at something, which was running. And I never knew it was really a sport, to be fair. Like, I didn't know distance running was a thing. And then went out for track and ended up doing well at that. Went on to college and ran. So that's a quick story about Cam is that I do uh, consider him one of the main reasons why I got into running. Because he instilled a confidence early on in my life. Like a very... um, like, yeah, life-changing moment was to run with Cam because yeah. he was already kind of a big deal in our town. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah. That's cool, man. And, so, like, I've I've talked to a lot of, like, really good Western hunters. Mm. And, like, a lot of them are from Oregon. It's crazy. Have you yeah. noticed that? Well, uh, I feel fortunate <laughs> to grow up here. But it's like when you're already – yeah, I mean – I don't know. It's hard to say. I noticed that. I do notice that a lot of good hunters come from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, it's, and, it's wild. Like a lot of them yeah. move out of there, but um, I think isn't Lampers from there? Originally? Washington. Yeah, he's from Washington. And then Brian Barney's from Oregon. I'm pretty sure. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um. Obviously, Cam Haynes. You. Um. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Brian calls from uh Oregon, he's from Oregon. originally. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, Oregon City, I think, is what bunch. he told me. Yeah, there's a there's a bunch of them. Um, I, I'm blanking now, but like literally like 75 percent of the guys on my podcast <laughs> are from Oregon. It's crazy. So I don't know what you guys do up there, but well, there's not a lot to do other than hunting. Okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's a shoe in. Um, I don't know. It's also like the capital, uh, the running capital of the world. You know, hmm. it's like Steve Prefontaine came out of Coos Bay, so yeah. there's a lot of running. Wait, is it Nike direct- from Oregon? Correct. Yeah, Bill Bowerman. Uh, started up Nike. He was basically pressing uh, pressing the soles of the shoes with a waffle iron. So he was one of the original, yeah, um, designers of a lightweight sole for a running shoe gotcha. that had some traction on it. Yeah. So he, so that's all the Oregon story. There's a lot of good um, books out there and movies about both of them. And mm-hmm. of course, being from from Oregon and from the Eugene Springfield area, like I gravitated to that in my running and and loved it yeah. so it's yeah steve prefontaine's an idol for sure cool um so you said you've been shooting bows since you're a kid and hunting yeah and um what about do you have kids now yes i have three and a fourth is on the way whoa so, nice when uh <laughs> uh september <laughs> oh dang dude okay yeah, so i good. my third is coming in uh, late july and yeah. we were pretty intentional about trying to time that and like yeah. I, we just made it because like, I was like I already had I'm going to Alaska in late August, and I was like mm-hmm. it was already booked when we found out we were pregnant or whatever, and I was like, so uh, you know what's the like what's the cutoff there? And she's like, if it's a month, you can go. And so I like just just made it. So oh good, yeah, <laughs> you established those deals early on. That's why. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's the end of September. Thank goodness, it's the due date September 29th. So. Um, I have to do this year a little different, which is great. I'm going to hunt California early. There's a couple units that are open for archery very, very early. So I'm going to do that hunt for the first time. And then September is going to be hunt close to home if I do. And mostly early on. Yeah. For elk. Yeah. Yep. And then after that, there will be a good break. (laughs) Yeah. But so, uh, California, um, doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, Nope. I actually started I, buying points yeah. there last year and okay. started I mean, I'm playing the long game man I'm get, I'm just getting points I, I don't even like yeah. if they if a state sells points I get them <laughs> yeah. I don't even know like when if I'll ever get there but like I just want to like be ready for as much as I can so um so that's interesting though so there's some there's some good opportunity in California huh Yeah you bet uh the northern portion that is right. the, a lot of the northern units are very mountainous and and inaccessible so there's a ton of country and i feel like it is overlooked and so i'm excited i wouldn't say it's overlooked from california like californians it's overlooked from the rest of the west like i i don't know anybody that's like yeah i'm headed to california this year it's like who do you i mean it's mostly you park at a trailhead in oregon and you're like how many you know vehicles have a california plate on them yeah or you go to idaho and it's like california california and so i'm basically reversing that role yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, and I'm very excited to go down there again. There's some very rugged terrain, some beautiful ranges, inaccessible wilderness type stuff. And I plan to make a film and kind of showcase what, what that opportunity is. It's over the counter and it's before a lot of the other hunts, both the archery and the rifle. So it doesn't necessarily overlap with the opportunity that you have in Oregon and Washington. And so that is just another way to get out, to see something new without basically jeopardizing my time and opportunity here in Oregon. So yeah. yeah, very excited about that hunt and working with a couple different locals down there just to learn as much as I can. I'll do a few scouting trips and sure. it's not far for me. I think it's like six and a half hours is the, you know, one of the spots. Nice. Yep. Nice man. So, um, are you more of an elk guy or more of a deer guy? I would say I'm more of a deer guy. I, I love to elk hunt. I've, I've gotten, a, I've killed a few pretty good bulls, but what I've realized is it's very, very challenging to pack a bull out by myself. <laughs> like it's altered my body, yeah. uh, you know, and yeah. there was, yeah, the worst pack out was, uh, in the middle of a Eagle cap wilderness. And I packed out this bull with a buddy and we did it in one trip. So we split the load Ooh. on that. I mean, it was a 13 and a half pack out with 2000, 2,500 feet elevation gain. I killed it next to a river. We actually, my buddy fell in the river. We had to build a crossing across this river. He falls in face first with the full load of pack. And I'm Ugh. like hustling out there to like help him. It was the, it was 13 the miles? nightmare. 13 and a half. 
um, yeah, we, we started it like, I want to say 4 PM. We got to our tents, which was like the, the stopping point. Um, not the stopping point, the mid more than a midway point, like our break spot. Yeah. And that was at three 30 AM. We slept for two hours, got up at daylight, which is around the five thirty mark. And then we do the rest of the, I think four and a half to five miles to get out to the Jeez. truck. It was brutal. And like, do you know yeah, what your pack weights then, were on that? Different. <laughs> What's yeah. that? Do you know what your pack weights were on that one? I don't. Nope. But I was yeah. at that point in my life. It was 2011 or 12. I think 2012. And I was a I was very fit. I just come out of college. I was a distance runner, and I was putting on a little bit more weight finally because I was lower mileage, but still had all that cardio fitness. Right. So you couldn't you couldn't break me at that point in time. But now things have changed. So I'm a deer guy because I could pack out a deer on my own. Yeah. And for me, that means more opportunity. What I have to do with an elk hunt is I have to go somewhere where I can get out on my own or plan ahead and plan to hunt with somebody else, which yeah. schedules, it's so tough to align. And, um, I have a few hunting buddies that are always willing to go, but it comes down to like, Hey, we're leaving this weekend. Does it still work? No, it doesn't. Yeah. Or I can, I can hunt with my dad. And usually it's a different focus. We, we try to get the ladies in, our, in my family opportunity first. So, okay. yeah. So, so it just you, doesn't always work, but yeah. So you, you prefer solo hunting, huh? prefer it or just, again, it's like, I love to be out and that opportunity to be out there, it just doesn't always align with, with someone else's calendar and schedule. So Mm. I want to be out as much as possible. And my vacation is kind of structured around when I can pull that time off from work or have a holiday and not everybody can do that same thing. Um, so to prefer it, it's that I prefer to have as much opportunity as possible. I got you. Yeah. Yeah, I've 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 done one solo backcountry trip. It was short. It was only like a couple days, but uh I don't know. Um I I wasn't really that into it. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like bad, but um yeah. I just like to share the experience with somebody. But I totally get. I mean, it sounds like you're kind of more doing it out of necessity of just kind of getting out there. Um but uh I don't know. Yeah, if if I can, I do like to have somebody there with me just to kind of share the experience, but yeah. yeah. Some people love the solo stuff. Yeah. I, it's interesting. I, I, th- I would say I, I love to have company, but again, it, it changes the dynamics too of like, well, there's one animal here. It's like, whose turn is it? Or, Hey, yeah. why don't you go after it? So if I think about it in an efficiency standpoint, it's efficient that you have two different tags and potentially two different people that could get one animal, but if it's going home with somebody else, then I've just spent that vacation time to assist somebody else in their harvest, which is great. Yeah. But when my wife and kids are at home thinking like, where's daddy? You know, right. I want to come home with either some meat in the freezer yeah. or some really good reason. So again, it's tough. It's it's kind of that moral dilemma of like how much hunting can I afford to do yeah. and time to be away and yet like not have it necessarily directly benefit my cause, my resources. But yeah, I like a bear hunt, for example, I almost always go with somebody else. Like yeah. it's just a fun hunt. It's a different experience. But when it comes to just putting meat in the freezer and getting out, like I'm going to go as much yeah. as I can. Yeah. And and other thing is like blacktail hunting. That's what I do a lot of. I, It's almost exclusively best solo. Like hmm. you're not really double the sound, double the scent, um, double the visibility, like it's very tough, very tough, still hunting wise too. And so I do it with my wife and I've had her in tow and she's had some great opportunities with two people, but it's just much harder. It's twice as hard. So that's why another reason of being very comfortable hunting by myself and doing it solo for those reasons. I'm not, and then if you're sitting in a stand over East, you know, you usually do that again, maybe by by yourself. So again, it's because it limits the sound, the scent, all those things. And it's more effective. Yeah. It's funny you say that because this was the first year I did not hunt whitetails since wow. I was like 14, I think. Mm-hmm. But, um, how was that? Something it was fine. Cause I killed two mule deer, love. coos deer and two <laughs> antelope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I didn't have time when I got home. I didn't have time. I wasn't going to be like, all right, I've been gone hunting for 10 days. Uh, <laughs> I'm home for two weeks. I'm going to go hunting by like, you know, it was yeah. like, so, um, yeah. but no, it was fine. I mean, <clears throat> Again, I I always say like I don't want to knock you know deer hunting you know whitetail deer hunting in a stand. I still will do it. I don't have anything against it. I love it. Um, but I don't know. I just uh, I like like when I found western hunting, it just kind of changed everything because I just I like the the physical challenge, the mental challenge, the 
activity, the the stalking. It just feels like a more complete experience. Plus, you're you know where we go, it's you're usually you know back in somewhere. Um, you know, you're not half a mile, five hundred yards from your truck. You know, you're yep. you're in somewhere. It's a it's a whole it's a whole experience. You know, there's a lot less limitation because there's public land. Yeah, that's. Yeah. That's the thing that's so tough for me when I've gone east is that I can't just go explore. It's not, I can't pick a direction and go infinitely or till I tire. You're pretty much confined to this is where you hunt. And if you get out of that stand, you're going to blow it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Animals are literally going to leave. There are, there is some public land in Virginia in the mountains, and there are spots you can kind of go um not not anywhere near as vast as out west um and uh and and actually my my first my first ever like public land camping hunting experience uh i actually did was here in virginia with my cousin um and it was cool it was really fun it was a great way to start um but also the deer density is very low i mean it's nothing to go three days and not see a deer Wow. Um, and, and the places where I was grew up hunting was like, you would see three deer in 30 minutes. Like there's tons of deer. So, um, it's just, it's tough. It's, it's a different kind of thing, but, um, but yeah, man, um, out West is just, yeah, like the amount of public land and, um, just the different types of landscapes. And, um, it's, uh, if you can afford to do it or, you know, have the time to do it, it's, that's kind of what I try to do here is just try to inspire people to, you know, if I can do it, you know, you can do it even, you know, start with the antelope hunt, start somewhere easy, you know, and, uh, yeah. and then grow from there. So. No, that's great. It's, it's neat that you're encouraging folks, especially East coasters, um, to get out West because there is a lot of opportunity and it's changing. It's always a changing landscape, but mm-hmm. I do appreciate the opportunity States and it's just a tougher hunt. You have to work harder, but I do love that. We still have some of those States. Oregon's one of them. So Oregon, yeah. you could buy over the counter, um, every pretty much every species except for the, the really, you know, the um, know. once in a lifetime hunts, so. which is amazing. Um, and, uh, one reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast today, because, um, I've said it before on here, but, um, I am planning to go to Oregon with my buddy Luke, who's from out yep. there also, um, this November. And we're going to spend a few days. I think, um, it's, I don't know. It's tough because, I normally like to focus on one species and really stay focused on that species, but because of the opportunity and just, um, how far it is, how, you know, it's not easy to get to Oregon from Virginia. So <laughs> I think we're going to try to spend maybe five to seven days hunting blacktail. And then maybe if we, you know, depending on how things go, maybe spend three or four days at the end, kind of looking for a Roosevelt. Yeah. So, um, and you, you may bounce back and forth because sometimes for whatever reason, it's like, the deer aren't moving. It's, it's been a full moon and we, or we see that there's a little weather predicted for the end of the week. Why don't we switch Mm. over to elk because they're screaming their heads off and, or I guess it depends on, are you, are you doing the, any legal weapon? Um, right now we're planning on just doing the rifle hunt, but, um, I don't know, maybe I should bring a bow out there. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so remind me again, um, the rifle hunt, so the any legal weapon deer hunt is uh, around the first week in October through November 10th. Yeah, it's going to the 10th this year. Yep. And so I think what happens And then like is that, elk starts like yes. the day after. Okay, okay, yeah. And okay, that is the rifle. That is the general rifle west side. Yeah. Um, okay, that makes sense. Because archery-wise, we uh-huh. have uh, nearly all of September this year. And it's both elk and deer at the same time on the west side. It's over the counter. So every unit on the west side is open. And then when you get later for the rifle, the, any legal weapon, which means you could do archery, mm-hmm. muzzleloader, rifle, whatever. And it's a five-week-long season. And this year is the latest in history that has yeah. ever ended. So it ends on November 10th. And the deer classically have started to rut around the 1st of November. So it's nearly a 10-day rut hunt. And that's yeah. like, I've already said it, but keep that hush. <laughs> you know, it's I like, know, dude. I didn't want to. I don't. I wasn't gonna say it unless you said it. But <laughs> yeah, and I mean, 
it's it is what it is like it, the word's going to get out eventually and yeah. it's a little it's a little troubling because i'm from oregon i see what the numbers are like and some areas can handle that a, a, a little bit later closure date and some areas can't some areas if you wipe out the deer numbers they're probably not coming back because yeah. of how low they already are and that we have a predator problem we have a predator problem with both wolves and cats wolves are becoming more and more of a thing i see them in my blacktail areas now on camera and they're chasing deer around it's just it was already kind of bleak with all the cats yeah. our cats have exploded in population over the last 15 years ever since they abandoned hound hunting yeah. hound hunting for cats was lumped in with a uh, public vote that banned bear baiting it was a bear baiting initiative that lumped in cat hunting with hounds okay. at the same time. So it's been illegal to use that form of Can hunting method. Wolves? Uh, wolves are protected. They are a, um, a federal, uh, it's a, it's a federal program to reinstate the gray wolf, which I don't want to go down that tangent, but <laughs> it's not a gray wolf. Okay. Gray wolf is extinct. They were not a gray wolf. They were brought to America, kept in a pen for a while and then said, okay, here's your gray wolf. So there's a long history of that. And a biologist could probably dive into all the reasons why they may call it a gray wolf, but they're just not from here. So I don't know what you're going to call it. Yeah. And they re they reintroduced them. And since then they've done nothing but take out uh, both the elk numbers in the Northeast corner and also constant livestock depredation and a huge mess. And it's so hard. You have to justify, it's like a crime scene if you were to kill a wolf. So you have, I mean, it has to be caught in the act. It has to be like hanging on the ham of a cow before you could shoot that thing on Jeez. film. So it's, it's a mess in my opinion. And I shouldn't <clears throat> go too far on that. Yeah. It's a political thing, but I, I don't love it. And they weren't from, they, they're, they're not a native species. Yeah. And anytime human tampering starts to mess with our native populations, they're going to have a long-standing consequence and they're not going to see that consequence play out until years later. And then what do you do? Oh, well, let's tamper again. Let's do something else. Yeah. And I don't love that process. It's a, it's not a good cycle. It's a no. negative loop. You have a bunch of, again, you got a bunch of like woke people yeah. like making biologic, like biology decisions at the ballot box that they know nothing about. Like, they would probably get hives walking across a lawn <laughs> and like they're telling us what, you know, us conservationists and outdoorsmen yeah. anyway. But, um, yep. yeah, that's terrible. But, um, yeah, but I am stoked about this hunt. Um, I think, cool. um, blacktail, first of all, I love blacktail. I think they're beautiful. I've shot a Sitka and, um, the Columbia would be the last North American deer subspecies I need to get my deer slam done. Uh, I'm also kind of a deer junkie, so I'm. And I watched your film, which was sick, and um, and so that got me even more pumped. So yeah. uh, they're just beautiful. They're beautiful deer, and I'm really excited. So I wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about that. Um, and again, man. So guys, if you haven't go to go to Nathan's uh, YouTube channel and check out his his new film. It's it's really cool. You you captured some like really amazing deer behavior on camera. Yeah. Like and I got to ask like is that level of activity normal or are you just like super lucky to catch all that? Cuz exactly. I've been hunting deer yeah. for a long time. I've never seen an actual fight and you had like two almost i think on your film yeah i did yeah that was <laughs> unreal well i'll just say that i've been hunting for a lot of years and gosh yeah over 20 something years and i've never witnessed it like and this year i had it happen twice so yeah like right in just, front of you and there yeah. was like like the like the first yeah, yeah. two minutes there's like mm -hmm. like deer <laughs> like right in your face like grunting like i was like dude this is sick <laughs> yeah, I I was uh, like very like happy. I would say it was like a heavenly experience. Um, the back. Okay, so I do want to return to first. Um, a lot of things came to mind when you were talking just a minute ago. Sure. First of all, Luke Dun um, is awesome, and that's such a great opportunity that you get to hunt with him in Oregon, yeah. and he's got a lot of knowledge on really good areas. So I would say do everything you can to be prepared and ready for that hunt because it will be like a once in a lifetime opportunity I would say to be able yes. to hunt. And like I want to ask you about how to be prepared. And dude, yeah. he's got some trail cam 
I know. photos. Don't you've seen them? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to yeah. go into it. I'm just saying, like, yeah, there's big deer out there. Yeah, there's big deer, especially in that region of the state, because. Uh, this is also the tangent I wanted to get on eventually, but I wanted to break down kind of my interpretation of the black-tailed deer in Oregon. So that kind of talks about the, the difference in the rut and the difference in their behavior and their looks. So I kind of want to talk about that. Yeah. But to finish that sentence, where you're going to go has some of the best black-tail genetics in all of Oregon. So yeah. the state records come from down in those counties. Uh, and... Uh, just historically, it's it's the best genetics because there's less of a cascade divide, and you're getting into that like um, that region of Oregon where where you could have a little bit of a intermixing between mule deer and blacktail that historically has made a larger antlered nest and then kind of a smaller bodied deer. Mm. Um, so they That's awesome. not necessarily smaller body. It, that all kind of depends too on habitat and feed and all the different players, but. Generally speaking, very giant antler deer, like and crazy genetics, very yeah. cool, non-typical stuff. Like, yeah, it's a dream hunt. Uh, I don't necessarily do that very often because I'm just so used to my cascade range where I hunt and I hunt high country deer and I just love the look of those deer. They're more of a baskety rack, smaller yeah. antlered, heavy. Uh, they have a different I love appearance. Those. They, they're so pretty. I don't know what it is, yeah, but yeah, it's like exactly. your buck was so cool. Like I okay, love yeah. big big forks you can see right here my this is my yeah. mule deer from this year he's a big like 130 inch two point yeah i love that your deer was so cool looking man yeah and some of the other ones you captured on film i was like oh those are so cool <laughs> yeah um i've seen some monsters but it's very rare i think it's like once or twice a year i'll come across a monster buck and like so for example this year i saw one buck that was in that like 140 to 150 class range and I just had a glimpse of him. He was 80 yards, pulled my binos. I'm like, whoa, you know, monster buck. And I put down my binos, load an arrow, and I'm just like waiting for some, like, what do I do here? Because we're both, we're locked, eyes are locked. And I can't shoot 80 yards in this dark timber like that. Uh, and buck moves on. So it's, it's very rare. And that gets back to like talking about that film that I just made. Very, very rare to see the interactions of bucks fighting. They're not... They're not as aggressive as whitetail. I'd say whitetail are like a very aggressive, very active deer. They are more alert. It's like they're way all over the place. And if you watch the behaviors of mule deer and blacktail, they're more of a docile or more calm, demeanored. They have a very they have a schedule. You know, they're gonna be going from their bedding area to their feeding area. It's it's much more calm. Whereas whitetail are like in this frenzy to constantly be like like playful and running around or eating and feeding and like moving. It's just yeah. like, it's chaotic. Um, in my small amount of whitetail knowledge, that, yeah. that would be my comparator. And uh, so the blacktail that I captured on film this year, it was like a once in a, yeah, I've never had that happen. I've, yeah. I've generally seen signs of a, of a fight or um, had, I've shot a ton of bucks that are broken up, but to come across yeah. that during the daylight was pretty remarkable. And, and then to you, be that, within like, yeah. Sorry to cut you off. No, uh, the timing of that, like, were you hunting, uh, was that kind of late October into early November kind of time frame? Okay. It was the weekend before Thanksgiving. So every year around uh, the November 19th or 20th or so, it's, it's right around there. So it's always the weekend before. But this year, like I was mentioning, all the dates got bumped back. So now I'm the weekend after Thanksgiving Is for that... the archery hunt. Okay. So there's a late archery hunt. Yep, it's the late okay. archery hunt is what I was doing. Cool. And it is known as the rut hunt, but it's really not. It's like you're maybe starting at peak rut or sometimes it's post rut, yeah. especially the coast range. So the coast range will rut a little earlier and also up uh, up north will rut just a little earlier. We're like like just we're talking like a week, maybe yeah three to five days it just generally speaking coast range and further north you go it's a little bit earlier mm -hmm. and then as you move towards the southern end of the state and even the cascades it's a little later because i think historically these deer have had to migrate so they had to get the weather the weather pushed them down into these areas where now they're wintering range and so that's just a little later in the year and then they they would breed so mm -hmm. i think on average they breed later 
it doesn't mean that a dough can't come into heat sooner. Right. It's just that on average, the majority is a little later. And that's why also I love to hunt the higher cascade hunt because it means that when my archery season finally opens, I have a better chance of catching deer in the rut because the rut is more of a November 10th to November 20th, 25th. That's like peak of the pre-rut and also do bucks chasing, getting on does. I would say actual breeding, like a, a buck's got a doe bait up and he's breeding her. That might be more of like the Thanksgiving, yeah. like right around Thanksgiving, a day either side. That's like when, when they're actually getting business done, but that's harder. That's a harder right. hunt because they're, they're not down. traveling. Yep. Yeah. The bucks are just flying around, cruising, fighting, and that's all early November. So that's cool. why it's better for a hunting opportunity. Cool. Yeah. Um, okay. So real quick question. Talk to me about the style of hunt you're doing in this film because – it didn't seem like you were really like getting on glassing knobs and glassing. It didn't really seem like you were sitting and you weren't obviously sitting in a tree stand either. It looked like you were just kind of walking around. <laughs> yep. Is that how you were doing? Is that what yeah. you're doing? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, some people call it still hunting and I just don't love that term, but it doesn't make I any sense. Like I, Cause you're not still, you're not still. Yeah. It's still the Google definition or uh Whipster dictionary is like the apps, the, the absence of movement. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, how is that applied to I never what understood I do? that either. Yeah, it, it is awkward, but I feel like that is the name I have to use if people understand what I'm doing. I would say I'm uh, pursuing deer at a rate that will not jeopardize an opportunity when it presents. So I'm never stopping that pursuit. It's always on. It's always game time. You're always alert. You're constantly scanning, constantly moving. You're... You're reading every bit of information you have in order to make the best decision you can in that moment to hopefully put yourself in front of a, of a deer. And then when I put myself in front of a deer, the odds that it is a shooter are like kind of like one in eight. So if in two days of this amount of hiking, I come across uh, eight deer, I know that one of them will be a shooter in two days. Hmm. And that's, that's about the odds. So I just have to trust in my ability. And that means that I'm, I'm listening intently I'm scanning like freaking crazy. I'm using my peripheral vision as much as I can because that's when you catch the movement. There's yeah. a lot, but there's been a few times where I've been moving slowly and I'll catch just a, like a little flick. Yep. And I'm like, what mm -hmm. was that? You know, binos up. And then I've got a doe that's bedded. And then you're looking around and sure enough, there's a buck right behind that doe bedded down with her. And they're just, you know, crashed out for the day. Yeah. And in those situations, it's, I've just been patient. And eventually, and just like the wind was right, I was hunting with the wind in my favor. And uh, I would say these deer, they're not used to humans. And I don't, I control my scent pretty well. Every day I'm able to come home, shower, put on fresh clothes. And I control my scent in the way that I get in there. I close, I change out my entire outfit a lot of times when I've completed my hike in. I hike in in the dark and I change out right at daylight. So I'm in this fresh outfit that is hopefully more scent free. And, but again, blacktail, it seems that when they haven't been exposed to a lot of people, they're not quite as alert. So you just don't want the wind blowing right to them. And so I've just been patient and eventually they get bored and they get up and start feeding around and the bucks, the rut. So he's going to start pushing the dough around. And that's, I've had an opportunity that way and killed a buck a few different times that way. And I'm looking for a more mature buck. And when I hunt the big timber and way back in these wilderness areas or national forest, I'm getting away from where everybody else can just glass them up in a unit. And you mentioned glassing. You can. You can sit on a knob and glass a unit, same way you would do mule deer hunting. But it's just it takes the right uh, terrain and it takes right. the right um, logging unit, essentially. So yeah. that's more of a private land timber company that allows access. That might be by permit entry. Sometimes you can get a free permit to enter. And it's very, very rare that you have national forest that's logged to the correct age of timber mm. to be able to support blacktail in that area. National forest doesn't really manage their timber like timber companies do. Right. So you don't have the right feed and habitat <laughs> where I like to hunt public land exclusively. I don't really, I don't want to know the rules. I just don't want to care about where my feet are. So I'm not going to go to the private timber. So that, that would be the big distinction between why I am still hunting and why I focus on that. And then the last bit of it is... When I have uh, 
it's giant, these areas I hunt, when it's so vast and there's so much land, why would I sit in one tree? Right. It's like, that tree is really lonely out here because there, well, I guess yeah. it's, it's not lonely because it's got a lot of company. I mean, it's giant. There's the timber is endless. Yeah. So it's like, I don't want to limit myself to this lonely tree or yeah. ground blind. It can be effective in some areas where there's features, uh, within the, the land formation where there's giant rock features that are nothing but cliff for thousands of feet. And then you might have, you know, a monster trail coming below this rock cliff. Yeah. But again, these deer use it for different reasons. It's the rut. Where are they going to hang out during the rut? Well, probably in an area where it facilitates breeding a doe, which is a flat, a bench. Why would they go all the way down below this rock feature? So I don't want to sit in a tree down there. Maybe the weather pushed them down. A bunch of snow fell. Well, then maybe it might be good. Yeah. But I'd rather walk that trail and sneak through that timber than to yeah. sit on it all day. So again, it's like a it's matter of perspective. Of, yeah, it's more fun. <laughs> it's more enjoyable. Yeah. Gosh, I could. And the other thing is you, you feel good about it. Like you, I mean. Yeah. You're actually hunting. Yeah. Yep. I mean, have you ever felt other than like, you know, yeah, I guess you have felt bad after a workout, but most, most of the time it's like, it's a good feeling. Like yeah. you did something. So with my still hunting method or actually just, you know, constant pursuit method, it's that I don't feel bad. Even when I've had, you know, a skunk day, I feel like right. that's a success. Uh, one of the things I always, it always comes to my mind, like the phrase I tell myself, so I get up into these areas, I'm way back in, and this thought comes to mind. It's that nobody can take this feeling of accomplishment away from me, that I just earned like that whole day. It's like mm -hmm. you've heard the phrase, maybe you win the day. Like Oregon football used to say it all the time, win the day. It was a Chip Kelly thing um, when they were national champs or close to it back in that time. But I earned that hike and nobody could take that feeling of accomplishment away from me. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if I saw a deer at all. And this country is so beautiful. It's so worth it. Like yeah. that right there, that it's overwhelming. Like mm. I've already won. Yeah. And in that case, the rest is just, you know, benefit. It's like, sure. it's just cherry on top. So, yeah. uh, and then these deer, you, we, you started to talk about it, but to me, the coastal blacktail, they live in such a dark, dense environment and, it's maybe like a very small gene pool. They don't have to migrate or move. So it's basically all the local deer interbreeding. It's a very, it's a very non-diverse pool mm -hmm. for genetic diversity. And then as you move towards areas like the valley, maybe there's things like habitat change between logging, whatever. So these deer actually get pushed, pushed by people and they move and that adds a little bit more genetic diversity and you mm -hmm. get a little bit prettier deer, a little bit bigger antler deer, that's not to say coastal deer are ugly. It's just, in my opinion, yeah. they're not quite as diverse. True. And then as you move up in the Cascades, and then again, over all of time, there has been intermixing between mule deer and blacktail enough to, to change the way they look a little bit. And they live in a mountainous terrain where it's like they're a bodybuilder as opposed to <laughs> uh, somebody who is like uh, just uh, like a fisherman <laughs> where it's just cast and drift. So, I mean, it's just a difference in, in basically their daily activity. So right. these deer up high are bigger bodied. They have different feed. It's a lot of the lichen that falls out of the trees. The lichen mm. is this bluish, you know, white colored, yeah. um, yeah, fungus that falls and, and they're eating it. And it, it's, it's a protein source that I've heard from some biologists have indicated it can last them for days. If they eat enough of this stuff, it's like, that's all they need or even weeks. Um, they don't need anything else. They could just survive off of this all winter. So that's a primary, that's like one of their primary food sources. Yeah. Wow. Yep. And yeah. Oh, they gobble it up. So every windstorm, the lichens fall off the trees yeah. and these blacktail walk around and just nibble it up right off the snow. I see it all yeah. the time. And I guess it's a pretty high protein source. I, I, again, I don't know any of this stuff for fact. It's just kind of what I've heard. Yeah. And it seems to make sense because it could sustain them. Mm -hmm. And these deer just take on a different appearance for all those reasons. It's their, it's their feed, it's their environment. And when, when you see these mountainous blacktail <laughs> with a double white throat patch, kind of red sandy so cool. appearance, and then they're stubby, yeah. like regressed. Cause I love the older bucks look, it's just, yeah. they're so cool. White, like a snow white muzzle, yeah. even not necessarily with age. A lot of that too is genetics. They just have this snow white muzzle. And that helps me a lot when I'm hunting in the dark timber, because I'll just pick that out. It's like, to me, it's like a sore thumb. When I see that white muzzle, it just stands out. Yeah. And that helps me see them a lot of times when I'm still hunting. So 
ah, it's just, I wouldn't want to go anywhere else. Even if the deer are bigger antlered down South or whatever, it's yeah. like, I still, I'm just so drawn to these deer that I hunt and I'm not attached to any single deer. A lot of guys might get like infatuated or hung up or, you know, naming or whatever with, yeah. with a certain deer. And to me, it's that I want any matured buck yeah. and I'm going to have a great time, you know, trying to get that done and feel very attached to it if I get to bring it home. And yeah. so it doesn't matter necessarily if it's one deer and yeah, there's a lot of country to cover and explore. So th- my adventure gets to run. You're out there and just enjoying God's creation and the solitude. Yeah. It is like your center. You you find so much peace and being out there in that type of country. Mm-hmm. And if you're in Oregon and, and you want to go for a hike and you have any extra time, I mean, I'd, I'd be glad to take you on a hike just to kind of get that feel of what that terrain and, and yeah. country looks like. But it is remarkable. That's yeah. cool, man. Yeah. Um. So what should I know being a first time Oregon hunter coming out there on this hunt from what you know, sounds like you've talked to Luke a little bit. So from what you know of kind of where we're going, um, because to be honest, like I have a lot on my plate and Luke has that kind of local knowledge. So I've kind of left it to him a little bit. Um, I haven't done a whole lot of looking, uh, plus I just haven't really had much time. Um, but, um, kind of one of the reasons I want to talk to you is just to get a little education on, on the species, you know, like I said, it might be a little bit different the way from how you hunt, but it sounds like, you know, a little yep. bit about it. So like, what should I be expecting? What should I kind of do? Or, you know, any tips you got? Yeah. I think anytime you're going somewhere new to hunt with somebody, you absolutely have to trust what they do. Yeah. And so everything I could say about my style of hunting and my methods and all of that, I would just like, for my advice straight to you as a friend, it's that don't listen to anything I have to say because Luke's going to be dialed in. You yeah. know, he's going to know how to hunt, where to hunt, where to go, what to do. And if that means sitting, it's like, well, that's your best opportunity. So you absolutely trust that. And so just kind of putting that to the side, yeah. if it's more of like your listeners that are interested in blacktail hunting and being open to different techniques and ideas, it's that Oregon has a lot of public land and it's, it's so diverse too with its high country to valley to coastal range. So you want to pick the method that's going to suit you best for that terrain and what the patterns that the deer are, you know, doing at that time. Mm-hmm. So I've touched on it, you know, but considering when the movement is and the rut and the moon phase. And so just being that if it's a full moon, they're going to feed at night, less active during the daylight. There's yeah. all those little things that you have to consider. And so to talk about still hunting again is that you could still call and rattle while you still hunt. It's not to say that you don't, you can't do that. I think it's very tough solo. You should always have a person with you. So it's kind of like calling for elk. Somebody's out front just a little ways, 10 feet, just enough. And then the person 10 feet behind that's rattling and calling is very hidden. And for rattling, uh, I have a film that's a blacktail tactics film out there. My dad shows how to rattle. So yeah, you beat the horns together for a little bit, hit the ground, but then we always, um, I have this staged here. So, um, I don't know why, but there's a ton of calls out there, but this call has killed a couple bucks. The can. And I've used it before. Uh, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Do you tip it or blow on it? Uh, I've tipped it, but I've, I've never yeah. seen anybody blowing it. Besides, by the way, I got to say, I just looked at the moon phase, new moon on November 13th. Oh, that's good timing. Yeah. yeah. So it could be incredible rut activity the last three days, last mm. five days of that season. But so to blow on this call again, that's kind of how okay. we do it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's, that is, you can have a little more control over it than just tipping it. Yes. Cause the tip sounds like kind of, <laughs> <That's> like, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like you did that really good. Uh, yeah, you don't even need the can call. You just do that. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I've actually been hiking in the crunchy snow, spooked a bucket like 50 yards with a doe. They take off and I just start blowing on that thing just nonstop. Just bruh, bruh, bruh. and then here comes that buck and he loops around and he's interested. Mm. And he, I've had a buck come in to 40 yards after. So I only use it as a second opportunity because I already ruined it. I already blew that stock or not stock, but that attempt. And I started blowing on the call and the thing came back. So that's something to consider as a second opportunity if you're still hunting. And then again, you can rattle 
but the Bucks going to come in very alert, very keyed in to right. that sound, and they're going to come in also nervous. They're going to come in like, like a, not necessarily aggressive. Sometimes right. a buck will fly in very aggressively, but sometimes they're just like, like a little hesitant, mm -hmm. and their eyes are just wide open, and they're just super alert. Very and keyed in. Yeah, it's just like how do you think when you draw back that bow and you're pinned in on that buck? You know, how would it not want to jump the string or just get out of dodge as soon as it hears a whack? Like, yeah. or I mean, the string going off is like a whack to them. So, uh, yeah, that's what's tough. I, I would say with that rifle hunt that you're going to go on, absolutely rattling from like a distance could be so incredible. If you have good visibility, you're on a ridge, like hmm. you could see 100 yards, you're going to rattle in like five bucks that last day. Absolutely. Wow. Like rattle. I, I mean... That's it, cool because I hadn't considered yeah. that, you know, because that's not a tactic that you associate much with like Western hunting, but uh, that'd be pretty cool and it could make for some really cool film. It'd be incredible. Yeah. And I've seen, I've seen some good stuff. It usually in areas that are less pressured, get the best for calling because yeah. it's, it's going to, a buck's going to hear a rattle a lot if, um, if you're in an area that's closer to where people populations are. And, yeah. but if it's like, you know, it's a pretty good hike back into an area. Yeah. I'd absolutely say rattle. And, uh, I would imagine Luke and you will probably do a combination of sit and hike around and still hunt and rattle. Like yeah. I would say that that would be definitely a tactic I'd recommend that you guys do. And I'm sure that's what you'll do. So any other tips? Uh, so for new hunters, there's so many questions of like, where do you go? And uh, I mean, I could break it down and tell every single method I'm aware of, of what to look for in terrain features, timber age, units, but it all boils down to the same basic principles, feed, like habitat, the deer, like you have to pay attention to what they're eating. What's their food source? Now safety, how, how are they going to retreat? Where do they retreat to? What's safety to them? Is it thick cover? They're, they got to have that nearby. Uh, so shelter is another one. So during the winter, during storms, they always have to have a bedding area. That's just shelter. It's just comfort for them. And so when you see all those components in an area where you see deer beds, you see rubs, you see the feed, which is usually either little pocket meadows and glades or the lichen that falls out of those trees, or it's a timbered unit that was logged and you have all those fresh green sprouts coming up. Those deer are going to feed on the timbered edges yeah. almost every single evening and morning. And they'll even get out in the middle of these units. If you've seen a lot of does in the area, does are a great indication that, okay, this has got all the right stuff, but there's always usually the bucks are off on their own, singles, doubles, every once in a while, a few other bucks, because they're still in that um, bachelor herd type mentality when you're in your rifle hunt. And then it, they kind of get spread out and fight as mm -hmm. you get closer to the rut. Again, it's just kind of considering all of those behaviors and patterns to help put yourself in the right spot. And then yeah. once you do figure out where these right spots are, that's where the last bit of advice is you have to be very, very comfortable with hiking in the dark or doing everything it takes to get yourself to the best spot at daylight at those prime right. times. Because for the East coast guys, prime time is you're in your tree stand before light, but right. for still hunting and everything else, it's the same principle. You're like, I don't believe that daylight is you shutting the truck door, you know, to go out and hike and hunt. Yeah. It's oh, that yeah. you are getting to your spot in the dark yeah. and you're just, that's where, you might have passed a deer in the dark, but I would say your opportunity was like a 10% opportunity if you started at the truck versus a 70% opportunity if you started where the deer typically are already going to be and right. hanging out. Or you left it the day before seeing all the deer here. So you're like, I'm going to be there right at daylight tomorrow to pick up where I left off. Yeah, It's just all those things. You have to feel comfortable doing it. And yeah, if, yeah cause you're not going to get up at 3am or 2am to start your day if, if you didn't know exactly what you were doing. For sure. Got to be confident in that. And I'm, I'm thinking we're going to be um, going back in somewhere and camping. So hopefully we'll be like a little closer to our hunting areas, I would hope. Yeah. Um, but just from a high level, and you kind of already talked about it a little bit, but um, from a out-of-state hunter's perspective like mine, what are maybe two or, the, two or three things that you might – because I'm assuming even though you are local, you probably know your area very well and know your spots, but are there two or three things that you might uh, look key in on uh, from an e-scouting perspective that might give you a clue like, hey, I want to go check this area out? Yep. 
Okay. So I'm going to break it down. Just into, from a high level. Yeah. Uh, kind of two different types of country. So again, for, for me, it's like there's private timber company land and there's national forest yeah. and BLM. We'll go with the public land option. Okay. Public land. So public land, it's that the deer do not have the luxury of feeding in a unit. So where are they going to get that feed from? And it's mm. where the sunlight hits the ground the best. Where does the sunlight hit the ground the best in the Northern hemisphere? It's the South slope. So the South slope is going to have the best feed opportunity. What's the best cover? It's a North slope. Anything that kind of breaks off to the North because it's thicker, there's less sunlight that hits the ground and all the low brush and cover. So it's, it's their safety. They're retreating, you know, to this area. And then the last piece is that they have to have flat benches and things that they can, you know, bed down in for the day, their mm -hmm. bedding areas with good visibility. And that's going to be their other bit of safety. So we are going to, you, you need to look for areas that are, uh, including both really, really old timber, because that's going to be that good visibility. And if you were to look on Google earth, you could see really big timber in contrast to small timber. So it's not very easy when everything is the same age. And in that case, yeah. it's probably not super old timber, but if you were to look on Google earth and you see these trees that are spaced out, you could see the ground through the trees. Yeah. That means that it's big open timber. So that's one thing to really pay attention to. Uh, if it's a North slope, you could just kind of count on very, very difficult to hike through. And, yeah. and that might be where you don't hike up into it because you're going to spend all day sweating your butt off and just yeah. like, you're never going to make it to your hunting spot by daylight. Yeah. Like, so you have to think about your hunting route into these areas. So that's another important thing about e-scouting. There is national forest, BLM, wilderness, all these public land options. And you got to consider too, that national forest will log. And there are units that could be the right age for, for the feed, but generally speaking, it's all overgrown. So you kind of have to look up and above where it's not logged ever. And then you kind of forecast from there. This might be a good starting spot for scouting and approach. I would also say that just like mule deer, mule deer love to be early on, like when they're velvet at the top of a mountain, right? Yeah. It's like, you never go look for a mule deer down by the river. That's right. a whitetail, right? Yeah. Where's the mule deer? Top of the mountain. So blacktail is very similar. I would say that especially when they're growing velvet and it's early, they're going to be as high as possible. And again, it's the best feed, best habitat. Maybe the snowmelt happened there last, or the sunlight hits the top of the mountain the best, or yeah. they feel the safest because they can have all that gravity, you know, working in their favor when they retreat and run downhill. So for whatever reason, deer like the top of the mountain or just a shade off the top. Yeah. The only exception to all of that is in Arizona, the muley is like the flats, the flats. Yeah. It's like, what the heck? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it doesn't do. apply uh, to that principle, but the coos um, deer up on the top. Yeah. The coos deer, it's like they reverse roles there. Yep. Uh, mm -hmm. And a whitetail is a more aggressive deer. So you kind of wonder too, if like dominant, uh, the dominant out. deer, even though they're smaller, yeah. like I kind of wonder if the dominant Napoleon deer always complex prevailed. deer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So for blacktail, I would start by looking at the top of the tops of mountains. Like every mountain I would swear has a blacktail on it in our cascade range, just every mountain. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of narrows it down. <laughs> are the deer, are the deer densities pretty good and in, in the kind of the area where like, should we expect to see like, you know, pretty good amount of deer per day or is it, you know, like you might go a day and not see anything. Oh uh, gosh. I mean, it's so tough because things like, so open country mule deer, you're going to see everything there. So there's going to be no doubt that you saw, and it, there either was good deer numbers or there wasn't. I would say for blacktail, you cannot think that way. Yeah. There are deer there. Like there are, there are deer just about everywhere. It's just a matter of like, did you see it? Did yeah. you miss it? Did you walk <laughs> right by it? Like you have no idea. You have no way of knowing that. For sure. Generally speaking, deer numbers are uh, very spotty. There are some units and some areas that are really good with numbers and some areas and some units that are just dismal, void of deer, very little wildlife, period. Yeah. So you have to really focus on the best habitat. And then it's like, boom, there's a concentration of deer in this one little spot. Hmm. And that's what I kind of target in my blacktail hunting is that you could spin your wheels and go hike all day and you're not going to see a deer. And then you go in this one little pocket on this one little ridge and then you got four or five. So yeah. it's... 
my film, I make it look like there's a ton of deer everywhere, but I, I also cut I down. Like, <laughs> yeah. You got to consider that I have, I'm using every sure. minute of the daylight to be able to yeah. see a deer. Yeah. And I know my spots really well. I'm out there all day and I've, I've cut down too. Yeah. So like cut down being, I hunted nine days. I think I showed like five days of, of hunting because I just, some days there's just nothing. Yeah. Like there just wasn't much. Yeah. So it's, yeah, deer numbers, it's, it's a tricky one to answer. And it just takes a lot of boots on the ground time. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of scouting, takes a lot of knowledge and just being willing to try new things. There's been times where I've gone run, on a run and just mm -hmm. ran 10 or 15 miles back into wilderness area and just scouted out that way just to see like, did I jump anything? Did I see any deer sign? So yeah. it just took a lot of years, a lot of time. And I've been yeah. doing it, you know, my whole life. So cool. best way to say that is there's some areas that are really good. Stay there like hunt that because <laughs> it's like, it's very tough to find pockets of just good numbers everywhere. It's, yeah. it's more like you find the little teeny areas with good numbers and then void everywhere else. Okay. Like what, um, what makes like, what's a, what's a big Columbia blacktail in terms of like, I'm not that interested in the scores, but just for like, for reference when I'm out there, like what's a good one. Yeah. A really good buck. I would say, uh, is anything over 130 for a Columbia blacktail and down South. I mean, there's bucks that could be in the one fifties pretty easily up North. I would say it gets harder and like a 120 to 130 bucks, pretty big Yeah. with the exception that there's always a freak somewhere. There's always a freak buck. That's sure. giant Columbia blacktail. It's interesting. You know, you keep using the term and to me, it's a, it's a Western deer in Oregon. Like everything is a Western deer. And I think where you get into the term Columbia blacktail is when it comes down to like scoring, official scoring hmm. and in a book buck, a book buck would be classified as a Columbia blacktail if it lives West of the I-5. So, so a Columbia is basically boiled down to there's this road in Oregon and everything on that side of the road is a Columbia and everything <laughs> on that side is not a Columbia. So to me, it's just, you know, hogwash, it's garbage. Like, I, I think it's just, they're all blacktail. They're all Western deer. Some areas have more of a, uh, influence from historic interbreeding between mule deer. We're talking like since the beginning of the glacial divide that was melted and you could finally have deer that would intermix yeah. between muleys and blacktail. So it's not like that one's a mule deer and that one's a blacktail. It's just that there, there might be a small percentage of DNA that right. has a little bit of both. And I think too, that there's some studies out there saying that like the blacktail came from a mix between the hybrid, like mm. a whitetail and a muley. So, I mean, to me, they're all a Western deer yeah. and some of them have different looks and behaviors and patterns based on where they live. What is the minimum? Just again, I'm not into scores. I'm just curious. Oh. What is the minimum book size for a blacktail out there? I don't know. Don't know. 110. Okay. Pope and Young, you mean? Uh, uh, and Crockett. <sighs> maybe 130. Uh, this is like a complete shot in the dark. Okay. Um, I'll look I would just, no yeah, look, look that up. I would say, I, and again, I really don't care. Close. Like from just because of the way I grew up hunting, you know, like, um, it's very different with Western hunting. Like, you know, it's funny. I'm like kind of learning this, like, you know, these guys I hunt with and stuff like, I mean, they spend a lot of time analyzing a deer, looking at it over, like, debate is it do i want to shoot? you know like for me it's like uh -huh. i got 30 seconds is it a good deer am i gonna shoot it yep okay yep. <laughs> so it's like exactly. for me it's just like i see a deer and like if i if it's you know if it's mature and it gets me going like let's let's do it i'm not really like analyzing a whole lot but um i think that's good that's where you yeah. want to be interesting side note i shot a i'm looking at him right now a white tail here in virginia uh two years ago with a double throat patch really yeah that's pretty rare yeah and also you know how most whitetails have a white chin yeah his whole chin is jet black whoa it's a really cool deer um uh, that at is right a now, cool but, deer but um anyway man um we're coming up on time here okay. um we could uh i'm sure talk more maybe we'll, we'll do another one or maybe we'll uh you know after after the season do another one catch up and talk about our hunting seasons and stuff but yeah. it's been really cool talking to you man i've learned a lot and um hopefully we can stay in touch maybe even we'll look you up when we're out there but okay. um tell folks where they can um check out your films and and all the stuff you got going yeah i just have a youtube that is where i post my films 
The YouTube is Nathan Endicott or Endicott Films. I have a film that's in the Full Draw Film Tour this year. The Full Draw Film cool. Tour does have a presence kind of around the U.S. And some of the states, I think, in the Midwest, or they don't have been too many locations. But I know I saw a few on the East Coast. Yeah. And my dad's uh, sheep hunt, it was a once-in-a-lifetime hunt Ooh. that he drew in Oregon. The odds were point, uh, two. I think it's 0.28. I don't want to say 0.028. Yeah, 0.28% odds of drawing that tag. So very, very low odds. And he chose to do it with his bow instead of a wow. rifle. And it's an, and yeah, and it's a once in a lifetime. It was a dream hunt for him. He'd have been applying for over 45 years. So that's in the wow. full drop film tour. And that's one way to check out again a film. Um, yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah, check out his there. YouTube, guys. He's got some really cool stuff on there. And then cool. um, on Instagram, your, what's your handle on Instagram? Nathan for you. Sweet. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Um, any closing thoughts or anything you want to say at the end here? No, I'm excited for you to black tail hunt. Me and, too, man. Yeah. And get your, uh, Columbia deer. That that'll be a true Columbia <laughs> where you and Luke are going just to make nice. sure that you weren't. I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah. It's a true Columbia and it'll be, uh, a, your opportunity of getting a record book buck is the highest in that unit. So I think you're going to do a great job. I'm excited for you. Me too, man. Uh, Luke and I have talked briefly too uh, recently, so feel free to reach out. I'm a resource. I'm glad to help. Appreciate that. Uh, I'd love to even, yeah, do everything I could. So you'd love to even what? Uh, I have to work remotely on this one, but it's be that I'd be, you know, I'm going to have a baby at that time frame. Okay. Yeah. So, but I would love to do everything I could to, yeah, to yeah. help out. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll definitely be in touch when we're going out there. And if, if you can come and hang out and camp for a night or anything, we'd love to have you. Cool. Cool, man. Right all right, well, we'll, uh, we'll be in touch, and I uh, hope you have a great day, man. Thanks. Thanks. You too.